Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. We're back with another great book right here in Read with me, Michelle Martin. Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker is here to discuss his new book, Rationality What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. He is one of the world's leading researchers in the area of linguistics, the mind, and human nature. He's a two time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Steven Pinker, it is an honor to speak with you. Thank you for being with us here in Singapore. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to start at the beginning for people who may not have a sense of your book yet, Rationality. They may not have picked it up. Why are you writing about rationality now? What is it about today's age that makes rationality worth talking about? It's always worth talking about. It's what makes us distinctive as a species. It's what explains our uh, ability to transform the planet. It's what explains our ability to improve our condition. That the, in previous books, I've written about how many indicators of human well being, when they are plotted over time, uh, show uh, improvements. That deaths in war have gone down, deaths in famine have gone down, extreme poverty has gone down, uh, education has gone up, uh, infant mortality has gone down, our lifespans have increased. How did that happen? Well, it didn't happen by magic. It didn't happen because the universe uh, smiles on us, because there's no force that lifts us ever upward. It happened because of our own ingenuity. When people apply their brain power to try to make humans better off, Sometimes they succeed and we accumulate the successes and we call that progress. Uh, and so there are many, many reasons to be interested in human rationality, but people, and, and there's fascinating research from psychology and behavioral economics on how human rationality works. What are the errors that we tend to make? What are our fallacies? What are our biases? These have always been of great interest. That research has won several Nobel prizes, including uh, most famously, the work of Daniel Kahneman, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in the early 2000s for his work with Amos Tversky, who died in the 1990s. Uh, but there is, uh, as you, your question suggests, there is a special interest, a special poignancy today, because we read about so much irrationality in an era in which science and technology are uh, reaching new heights. We still have uh, quack cures in medicine, we have uh, belief in paranormal phenomena, we have belief in conspiracy theories, we have uh, fake news. Why is the human mind susceptible to so much nonsense uh, at the same time as we're clearly such a brainy species? You write in the book David Hume's famous argument that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. You say Hume, one of the hardest-headed philosophers in the history of Western thought, was not advising his readers to shoot from the hip, live for the moment, or fall head over heels for Mr. Wrong. He was making the logical point that reason is the means to an end, and cannot tell you 
what that end should be. I think that's really interesting because I think that for many people, when they think about living a rational life, very often they think, surely there's some areas where rationality cannot completely help me make a decision, where I have to depend on my intuition. For example, picking a spouse. I wonder if you can explain a little on the relationship or expound a little on the relationship between passions and reason. Yes, and I think Hume is often misinterpreted as saying that we should act on impulse, do what feels good, shoot from the hip, live for the moment. I don't think that's what he meant. I think that all he meant was that reason is a means to an end. For, uh, it's deployed toward a goal. We call it rationality when uh, we <clears throat> figure out new ways of getting what we want. But reason can't tell you what you should want. That is decided upon separately from reason, and reason is a, a means to that end. And for that reason, there is no tension or contrast between falling in love, enjoying nature, uh, having deep friendships, laughing, dancing, having fun. Those are perfectly reasonable goals, and but reason can help you attain them. Namely, where do you find a, uh, a mate? Uh, are you, and you could ask yourself, am I, foolish to fall in love with someone who will uh, harm me in the long run, someone who's married to someone else, someone who's a yeah, serial killer. Uh, there's no reason we can't apply reason to our uh, passions. And speaking of instincts, I thought it interesting when I heard you say in an interview that our first instinct when faced with a logical puzzle often is wrong. I had that experience when I read in your book about the Monty Hall problem. I definitely seized on the wrong answer. And I must say I am enthralled with a woman who stood up against the world and had the right answer and had the courage to stand by her answer, Marilyn Von Savant. In fact, I'm so enthralled I had to read up about her life afterwards. I'm still reading. <laughs> Back to this idea of logical puzzles, though. I'm wondering if it is how these puzzles are set up language-wise that leads us to the wrong instinctive first answer. And I'm also wondering if there is something similar to thinking through a maths problem that is fundamental to thinking rationally. Some of the problems that I, I, I quote in the book, including the Monty Hall problem, I'll explain it in a second, uh, capitalize on our expectations, on our assumptions about how the world works, which are false in that particular puzzle. And so we're, we're lured into a trap. Our first response, which ordinarily would be reasonable, leads to the wrong answer in those puzzles. And so uh, almost everyone makes the error. I mean, a very simple example before the Monty Hall problem, but this is from a three-item test called the Cognitive Reflection Test. If a, an iPhone and an iPhone case cost $110 uh, in all, the uh, phone costs $100 more than the case, how much does the phone cost? Most people say, oh, $100. When you think about it, wait, if the phone is $100, the case is $10, then it's $90 more than the case, not $100 more than the case. The correct answer is $105. Many people get it wrong. It's not, a, it's not a hard math problem. It's not that you need calculus to solve it, but you need to think twice and override the first te temptation to take the dollar or the 110 uh, to, to think that there's some special significance to 110. Oh, that's 110. So 100 for the phone, 10 for the case, but that's not 
what, what the problem says. It's just a tempting trap. And, and often there are um, tempting traps. It, it's un, what's unusual in the problem and what makes it so seductive is that the same puzzle, namely the sum of the larger, the more expensive item and the less expensive item, uh, the, the, the problem says that the difference is 100 and then the actual price is 110. And that's a coincidence, but it's a coincidence that fools us. Right. Now the Monty Hall problem, I'll just say it very, very quickly. It's based so mostly on an American game show, a television game show where there are three doors. It's named after the host of the real series. His name was Monty Hall. Uh, behind two of the doors, there's a goat. Behind the, uh, the third door, there is a luxury car and you don't know which door, you're the contestant. You choose a door, but you don't open it. You don't open, you, you just pick the door, but before he opens it, he opens one of the other doors, revealing a goat. And now the question is, do you stick with your initial choice or do you switch to the door that he did not open? Now, almost everyone says, doesn't matter, it's 50-50. Uh, it was 50-50 before he opened the door, he, he, he opened that other door 50-50 after. The answer is you should switch. That if you switch, you will win two out of three times. If you stick with your initial choice, you'll win one out of three times. That's very uh, unintuitive. It's partly, and even some of the world's greatest mathematicians failed the problem. But once again, this is not a hard math problem. It's not like you have to do advanced analysis. You just have to conceive of it in the right way, which many mathematicians themselves didn't. And you mentioned Marilyn Vos-Savant. She is an American columnist. She has a, uh, a, a column of brain teasers and puzzles in a popular magazine that's distributed free in American Sunday newspapers. The magazine has recipes, it has celebrity gossip, it has fashion, and it has her column. Uh, she explained it in the column and she got hundreds of letters from people, including professors of probability and statistics, saying that she had made a terrible blunder, she was misleading the public, but the professors were wrong and Marilyn Vos-Savant was right. You should switch. Uh, but it's hard for people to, to grasp that. The reason is that Monty Hall, in choosing to open one door but not the other, is providing information. The fact that he did not choose, say, door number one, but he could have, suggests that there's a higher probability that, that, that that's where the, the uh, car is. And Marilyn uh, explained it, tried to make it more intuitive, where she said, imagine there are a thousand doors. You pick one, Monty Hall opens 998 of the others. So there's the door you picked and there's the one door that he didn't open. Would you, would you switch? Well, then people say, well, yeah, of course I'd switch. Why didn't he pick that door of all the doors? But the mathematics is the same, uh, or at least the difference is the same. And you should capitalize on any bit of information that nature provides you. Now in real life, you don't have someone like Monty Hall who deliberately uh, chooses something that you have not in order to build suspense. It's a very unnatural situation. And that's one of the reasons why we don't uh, immediately get the answer. But it's interesting because it, it's uh, most people get it wrong, even though it's, it's very simple. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could try it yourself on, there are a number of, of websites where you can play the game. And you can just count them up. You know, if you, if you, don't, if you don't believe my argument, just keep playing the game with the switch strategy, see how often you win. Keep playing the game with the stay strategy, see how often you win, and reality will tell you what the answer is. So it's not, not even that hard. But it can, it, um, 
fools our intuitions. So it's a reminder that our first, uh, even sometimes a very strong intuition might be wrong. It's a nice example of one of the uh, a di wholly different kind of uh, fallacy, sometimes called an informal fallacy or failure of critical thinking, where a lot of people, I think, dismissed uh, Marilyn Vos Savant because she was a, a beautiful woman, very stylish. She wrote for a, um, a, a magazine that, that appeals to uh, millions of ordinary people. And so people use that uh, as, a, uh, as a as a kind of false cue that she couldn't be that smart, that she uh, maybe she was a woman, there may have been some sexism in there, but all of those stereotypes can also interfere with reasoning. That's Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker discussing his book with me, Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, why it matters. Think about it, you can be really smart, but not so rational. We talk about individual and collective rationality in this part of the interview. From a societal standpoint, it's large groups. Think of news organizations or Wikipedia, groups with a commitment to truth that's essential for rationality to live in societies. Later on, I asked Steven Pinker about cryptocurrencies. Is it rational to invest in cryptocurrencies? First, we talked about the social aspect to rationality. I'd heard of a saying by Carl Jung, thinking is difficult, let the herd pass judgment. You'll hear Pinker distinguishing the social aspect he's talking about from this idea of herd thinking. Yes, it's a uh... It helps resolve the puzzle of how our species, on the one hand, has achieved such scientific and technological miracles, uh, like going to the moon and inventing smartphones and vaccines and antibiotics and sequencing DNA. Uh, <clears throat> uh, how do we manage to do that if the same species can think that ivermectin is a good way to treat, to treat COVID or that COVID or that COVID is a conspiracy by Bill Gates to implant microchips in people? Uh, and part of the reason is that, the main reason, is that when rationality succeeds, it is as part of a community where, uh, because every human is biased, I'm biased and you're biased, you know, I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a god, I'm not an angel, um, but, and I will make mistakes <clears throat> and I won't even know it because from my point of view, they don't feel like mistakes, I always think I'm right, but people are very good at spotting other people's fallacies. Oh, so. Yes. Even though, exactly, so I might have some crazy belief that seems totally correct to me, but then you can say, well, here's seven reasons why you're wrong. And so if you're allowed to do that, if you're in communities where you filter out uh, falsehoods, where you have to take time to reflect on claims before you um, pronounce that they're true, uh, if you verify where the claim came from, uh, and we, what do I mean by communities? Well, there's science, which has peer review and journals and scientific societies, mm. uh, democratic politics, where you have checks and balances. So instead of having a, a, a dictator or an autocrat who uh, just imposes his whims on the population, and since he's a person, he's not a god, except in you know, North Korea, where they, they maybe they think he's a, a god, but real presidents and prime ministers and, and commissars are human beings, they're going to make mistakes. So instead of giving them total power, including all of their crazy, crazy ideas, because we all have crazy ideas, there's a legislature, there's a constitution, there are constraints on the, uh, the leader's power. In uh, news organizations, 
the reporters and journalists can't write whatever they want, there's an editor who will say, well, are you sure this is correct? Who told you this? Can you get a second source? Uh, or they're fact checkers. You wrote that this uh, war killed so many people, but uh, can, did you look that up in the encyclopedia? And you have someone else looking it up to make sure it's true. So all of these kind of somewhat bureaucratic, rule-based mechanisms for uh, weeding out falsehood for truth that are not uh, infallible, they don't work 100% of the time, but they're better than not having them. And if you don't have that, if anyone can say anything they want, such as on Twitter, then you get this ocean of falsehoods. It was at this point that I was reminded of a quote that I had heard attributed to Carl Jung. And Steven Pinker hadn't heard of this particular saying, but here it goes. Uh, apparently, Carl Jung said, thinking is difficult. Let the herd pass judgment. I would somewhat disagree. It's not the herd, because uh, the herd can be wrong, too. It's not a blind majority. Exactly. It's actually a set of rules for vetting, fact-checking, verifying. Uh, the, it can't just be a herd of, of, of sheep, you know, all voting. There's no reason to think that, that the herd will be any more accurate than any of the individuals. It's only if they have a commitment to truth and if they have rules for distinguishing truth and falsehood. Uh, so for uh, another example, I talked about science, I talked about democratic governance, uh, I talked about um, news sources, journalistic outlets, but Wikipedia is another example where um, it is digital, it's electronic, but it has a it's pretty accurate. It's not 100% accurate, but you know nothing's 100% accurate. And there, they have a commitment. They have principles. Wikipedia is dedicated to objectivity, um, uh, viewpoint neutrality, and there are many, many editors and contributors, each of whom can correct the other's uh, mistakes. Uh, and so with that, and they have to justify why they're correcting it, and their justifications are then examined by other people. And so it's a, a herd that works under certain goals, namely truth, and certain rules, namely you have to back things up with sources. You know, rationality by definition is not committing fallacies, uh, but how do you get uh, mortal beings like humans, members yeah. of homo sapiens with all of our flaws, how do we manage to attain rationality? The answer is none of us do individually. We do it as a community following certain rules. Well, speaking of community, I want to bring in a friend of the station. We are a news station and a business station, and uh, a great friend and a wonderful commentator on our station is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. His name is Arun Pai. I promised him I'd share his question with you, and here it is. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, claims it's a moral duty to be as rational as you can possibly make yourself. And this, he says, is his secret for such a phenomenal track record in investing. Something that he thanks his genes and surroundings for. So the question is, is rationality genetic, surroundings, <laughs> or a combination of? I think a combination of, and I know Charlie Munger. I had him on my own radio show. It's going to be uh, broadcasted in November called Think with Pinker. Uh, on, on BBC and, and available as a podcast, if I can put, throw in that plug. Um, but Charlie Munger, I think you know, uh, I think he's right that, that we ought to be as rational as possible. I we know that intelligence is partly heritable, 
It, rationality and intelligence are correlated, but only roughly. That is, the correlation coefficient is maybe you know, 0.5. So you can be smart, but not so rational. Uh, smart meaning you have you know, good brain power, uh, uh, a powerful chip uh, in, in the skull. But you may not use it in a rational way. I mean, you have a greater probability of it. Now, I don't, there are tests for rationality that are separate from intelligence, showing that they correlate but imperfectly. I don't know if anyone who has done the genetic studies to show that rationality is partly genetic, but I bet it is because everything is partly genetic. Uh, surroundings, yes, I think absolutely the surroundings matter because you have to, this gets us back to our communities of editing, fact-checking, checks and balances, free speech, open debate, uh, mutual criticism. Uh, so you need to belong to one of those communities and uh, you also need to have, the community has to have a commitment to being, um, to, to, to objective truth and reality. And that, that's not automatic. There are many people uh, who say that what the important thing is, hold on to your opinions no matter what, be firm, be steadfast, be courageous, be resolute. Uh, now, rationally speaking, if the evidence changes, you should change your mind. But for some people, that's a sign of weakness. That's a sign of, of, of uh, lack of character. So being in a community that values objective truth is, is also essential to being rational. I'm going to turn now to an area that we debate quite often on this channel. Some people believe it's irrational to invest in cryptocurrency that inherently they believe has no value, that is imaginary, that maybe defies the laws of economics and can be seen as a massive tulip bubble to some. Others believe it's a different form of value, that we're still watching the blockchain and the crypto space evolve. So Stephen, are cryptocurrencies a collective insanity? <laughs> well, this does get into an, uh, a whole kind of rationality that I discuss in, in my book, Rationality, in the chapter on game theory. And game theory has nothing to do with game, with computer games. <laughs> it's what is the rational uh, thing to do when the outcome depends on what other rational people do. Uh, and there are often surprises in, in uh, game theory where everyone acting in their own self-interest can make everything worse for themselves and for everyone else, sometimes called a tragedy of the commons. Mm -hmm. But um, likewise, speculative bubbles and the opposite, bank runs or run, runs, running for the exits, has a, a perverse kind of rationality for the individual that might be irrational when everyone does it. So as in bubbles like, like tulip, tulips and, uh, um, uh, and other speculative assets, at every given stage, if you think that everyone else thinks that everyone else thinks that everyone else thinks it's going to go up, then it's kind of rational to invest in it because that expectation will, will drive it up, at least until it bursts. And so if you're lucky enough to be in on it from the beginning and then get out just before the bubble bursts, which of course no one knows when it's going to happen, you could be become very rich. It's a, it's a calculated gamble. Now, for the economy as a whole, of course, it can be devastating. One of the reasons we have laws and government is because in anarchy, everyone just acting in their own self-interest can make everyone, including themselves, worse off. Uh, now, in the case of, um, of, of um, uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain, 
it, they're so new that we don't know whether this is a bubble that's about to burst or or if so when uh, so whether <clears throat> so whether it's collectively rational is uh, unfortunately unknown. Whether it's individually rational, well, so far it has. If you were an early investor, you'd, you'd have made a fortune. But again, individual rationality and rationality when every individual pursues it can be very different things. And that's why we have game theory. So how, for someone who doesn't have the information, right? We don't have the information to make a determination about crypto yet. What do we do? How, how do we think our way through yeah, so there, that, that, that's the subject of another chapter in the book on rational choice or expected utility, where, I mean, the generic answer uh, is that you consider for, for a number of alternatives, you multiply the probability of each outcome by the cost or benefit, you know, positive or negative, and you choose the alternative that has the highest expected uh, value, that is the sum of the probabilities times the payoffs. Now, of course, the problem is you may not know the probabilities, and that's very true with uh, with, uh, with, with uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, it's sometimes called the distinction between uncertainty and risk. Risk is you know what the odds are, you gamble. Uncertainty is you don't even know what the odds are. And unfortunately, in, in cryptocurrency, we're in a, a, a condition of uncertainty because they are so new. But one could do your best at assessing the probabilities. I think you know there's a 20% chance that it's a bubble. There's an 80% chance that it'll keep going for another five years. Uh, here's what I would lose if it's a bubble. Here's what I would gain if it continues to appreciate. Um, and, and then it's, it's up to you, depending on how much risk you're willing to take, uh, you can choose accordingly. But knowing that, as with all gambles, you, you might get hurt. Mr. Pinker, is it true that this book of yours grew out of a course you were teaching on rationality at Harvard? It, it is true. I, I uh, taught it, then COVID happened. I uh, video recorded my lectures, I put them online, and suddenly everyone was watching them. Uh, That's and fantastic, because I, I feel like I've got a course in rationality just by <laughs> reading this book. So thank you so much. Thank you for the book, and thank you for this interview. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Steven Pinker is the Johnstone Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. I was so delighted to be able to sit across the man himself. Virtually, of course, that's Steven Pinker. I was talking to him about his brand new book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. I'm Michelle Martin. Thank you for your company. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.